Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi everybody, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now this is our 50th episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast. We kicked off in May 2019 and since then we've had almost 350,000 listens across a whole wide range of episodes with sit-down chats, classic cars, Q&A. It's been a great 50, but here's to another 50 more. Now, my guest on this episode is Paul Umbrell, of course, the 2012 Bathurst 1000 winner. He's now co-owner of Triple Eight Race Engineering and very successful when it comes to business. In part one, we talk about him racing V8 supercars, Formula Holdens and the like, all while he was still a teenager. We talk about his very early years in V8s with Larry Perkins and the time that he pushed LP's patience just that bit too far. And we also learnt that, well, Paul PD, he's a bit of an accident-prone kind of guy. There's a couple of stories about ill-timed injuries, including the time he broke his collarbone just five weeks before the Bathurst 1000. Stay tuned for part two as well. We cover off the deal that nearly saw him replace Russell Ingle at Stone Brothers Racing. In fact, the deal was done and had to be undone. We talk about his breakthrough success at Sandown in 2010, uh, how he joined Triple Eight as an endurance co-driver and then later became a partner and a team co-owner of the organisation. We'll hit him up with our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and subject PD to the Focus Top 10 Shootout. Now, I caught up with Paul face-to-face at Total Tools head office in Port Melbourne, where he is very busy at work these days. He loved the chance to sit down and talk about some motor racing from his career that has gone for far longer than probably any of us have stopped to realise, given that he started so young. So here we go. Buckle up, time to start. Part one of Paul Umbrell on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Paul Umbrell, thank you for your time. Thank you for your hospitality too. Very kind of you to have us here at Total Tools today. Uh, I don't know where to start. And you look like you are not knowing where this is going. This could go anywhere. Agree? Absolutely. As I think I said to you before we started, uh, it's not the questions which you've got written down. It's your memories of uh, of our uh, 25 years. How long have we known each other, Noons? Oh, you're, too you're, long. Too long. Too I long. remember um, Grosvenor, I was just double-checking that Will or his mum didn't still live there. Grosvenor Parade? Yeah. Uh, it was before that. I, I was the new Davison brother. You were. Uh, when you Alex were. went to race in Germany, uh, yep. I moved in, in his room. old bedroom. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. So... It's probably the best part of 20 years we've known one another. So there's plenty of stuff to discuss. There's plenty of stuff to probably avoid as well. But I wanted to start with uh, this links in really nicely. This is the 50th episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken. And you won the 50th year celebration race of the Bathurst 1000. And if I wind back, obviously you won, and that's the great part of it. But could you have ever imagined as a kid at school that the kid you went to school with, Will Davison, you would start on the front row of the grid in the cars alongside one another for the two biggest teams in the sport at the time at Bathurst in 2012. Surely you had to pinch yourself that day. 
Yeah, I think I've had to pinch myself my whole career, to be honest. It, and it's funny, you look back and, and I guess, you know, many people would know, some probably don't, that Will, Jamie and I were, Will and I went to school together. Uh, Will is actually the Did you reason. Did you go to school much? Well, let's not get bogged down in the fine, <laughs> fine detail in Hoons. <laughs> I'll have to re-listen to Davo's uh, Davo's episode to make sure I don't contradict anything that we're saying. I'm not sure that they can revoke your Year 12 certificate. Um, but uh, no, like Will, Will and I obviously went to school together. We sort of knew each other from Year 6 and he's actually the reason why I got into motor racing. So it's amazing. It's full circle, as you said, starting on the front row. And then Will, Jamie and I became best mates in our in our mid-teens so yeah 14 15 16 um racing go-karts around the country and whatnot and and to fast forward where we are today you know uh, all the boys at each other's weddings um you know starting the front row the success that jamie and will have had on a full-time career and, and setting some of the success that jdub and i've had um you know it's a it's been a been an amazing ride and one which um if you think back as a fourteen or fifteen year old, um, would you say would you take your career as it's as it's uh, as it's had? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's funny though, isn't it? That oh, everyone would have probably presumed because your dad raced, you know, he did Bathurst in the seventies in escorts and capris and stuff with John Faulkner. That a dad races, a son races. That's yeah. a pretty logical progression. But you saying that it's actually Will's fault, really? How did that all come to be? Or did you have no interest in it before? You met him I've, in I've the karting thing. I've stuff? got a few photos actually of, of my uh, sitting in, in the pits in my old man's VL Commodore at Sandown, you know, tending to drive as as uh, as most people do. But I've got no memory of actually racing back, uh, you know, for with my old man racing at a four or five year old. Um, yeah, Will. I think we we're. Uh, I didn't really know Will and um, at Xavier, and we'll all go school holidays as kids do. We're going to Queensland on a family holiday. And uh, a mutual friend uh, introduced Will and I to each other saying, well, you're both going up to Queensland. You guys should catch up and do what 12 or 13-year-olds uh, do in Queensland, go to Wet Wild or whatnot. And so we, we organised it and um, we went to pick Will up and uh, my we pulled up uh, at the hotel and, and my Gary, my father, said, I know Richard. I used to race against him in the 70s or the 60s, 70s and 80s. Open wheelers. Open wheelers. And, uh, and that's where we sort of, Will and I got to, got to know each other, came back to Melbourne. Will was racing at an Oakley Club Day and I remember it absolutely. Went and saw him and we got there and had the chicken nuggets at the canteen watching, uh, <laughs> watching Will race. And he actually spun out and put it into, uh, into the dirt. And, uh, you know, uh, went to see the pits, a little naive. Oh, how, how good was that, Will? You know, he slammed his go-kart on the trolley and wheeled off and didn't speak to me. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is, I don't know about this sport. Um, but yeah, obviously fell in love with it. Um, was lucky enough. My, my father obviously, you know, gave me an inch and he probably drove a Mack truck through it about, <laughs> oh, how great's this? And, uh, hey, we, we set off on a, on a journey of, uh, motor racing and go-karting and, and the rest is history. There's so much to cover off. And I think one of the things I want to cover in the pod too is, not just the racing, that's the obvious stuff, but I want to talk a bit of business with you as well because that's been a huge part of your, your world. When you were young, you started really young in car racing. I think you were, what, 16 when you were stepping into Formula Holden, which were open wheelers that were mm. fast race cars. The fastest racing cars we've probably had in Australia in 20, 25 mm. years. Mm. But you drove a bit of everything. You did, I think it was a GTP Subaru at Bathurst with Dean Canto, yep, right. a NASCAR. I think you might have even tried an Oscar somewhere yep. along the line. Yep. At that young age, before you'd even – turned 18 you had to go in just about everything why was it a case of experience building or you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do and you wanted to try everything what was the why why was it so yeah i think um obviously driven a lot by by gary my father i think a lot of it was about experience you know one of the things i learned in karting was i 
kept on stepping up to faster carts. And then when you went back to a slower cart, everything just felt slower. You were more in control. So you're sort of challenging yourself and challenging uh, what you did. I, I think we just took a lot of the opportunities that were there at the time. So um, like now, people, um, you know, some of the retired co-drivers are now, you know, they're, they're racing GT or TCR or whatnot. It probably wasn't done as much back then um so not saying that we we're the first to do it was just we we're trying to get experience mm. you know racing seven rounds or six or seven rounds in in formula holden whilst that's great uh, you know there's 42 other weekends of the year um which you weren't doing something and in karting you went from racing 20 or 30 times a year to racing cars racing six or seven weekends and and certainly from my perspective you know i needed the miles and the cars um to become competitive and Took me twenty years to become competitive, but um, but yeah, so it was just about challenging ourselves, doing lots of miles and racing, and and that experience, which was the the big driver of it. But yeah, absolutely, did did some pretty awesome stuff. Crashed, tore up a few cars, noons, yeah, just a couple, just a couple. <laughs> over the years. Yeah, absolutely, a few so, canoes along the way. Yeah, but definitely. What young racing driver doesn't have yep, some indeed, indeed. And wreck some stuff? That's yep. how it is. Uh, at what point did you hone in on where you wanted to go with your motor racing? Because you've always, since we've known you for twenty years, had the business brain you boost juice bar yep. you i think you were the bfe helmet guy there for a while yep. back in the day too yep. Yep. Uh, at what point did you go i'm a race driver that likes and is involved in business or have you always felt i'm a businessman who then also goes car racing um i think not knowing where car racing was going to go and our family always being involved in businesses over the journey so and always, particularly automotive yeah automotive yeah, yeah automotive has been our, our heritage and 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 obviously had strong involvement in that over the years so been around listening hearing about franchising automotive autobahn you know since i was you know five years old so <laughs> you've been of, an expert since you're eight <laughs> yeah well yeah expert of nothing but um <laughs> So I think, you know, business, I was always going to do both things at once because, um, to be frank, you know, I didn't know if motor racing was going to go anywhere. And if you look at my karting record, you know, that was probably a fairly good assumption to make. Um, we obviously didn't have a, a lot of success in karting. Um, so, you know, wanted to make sure, you know, obviously, you know, backed, backed both, both uh, options and, 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 and did that in the first couple of years of racing, then uh, sort of did the full-time racing um, when I stayed with LP and and didn't sold the boost juice bar and whatnot, and to be honest, that was probably the worst part of my, worst time of my career hmm. when I actually didn't have other things going on in my my life. Now, is that dedication, commitment, focus? I, I don't really know. It wasn't really until um, you know I started doing Ironman triathlon and getting back into business where I sort of had the. It might be just the balance. You mm. know, what I needed to perform at a level was was the right balance of motor racing and um, things outside of that as well. Did you always feel like it was a struggle to earn the respect because, I mean, the, the tags were there from a long time ago. Yep. He's only here because of his money. Yep, absolutely. His dad's got a lot of money. He's got sponsors. He can drive yep. whatever car he likes. He could go and crash one and go and build another one, whatever. Did you, did that affect you in that, that phase? Oh, I don't think it stopped from when we won Bathurst or in the years after. I think that was always a, a tag and, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly. You know, I've been the first to say – I can't change who uh, my family is. I guess the only thing I can do is take the opportunity that was given or provided or earned and make the most of it. Hmm. And that's what I'll judge myself on. Obviously, a lot of people will say, well, you don't deserve that. Well, I can't change that. Hmm. I can't change um, the position I was in or the opportunity. All I can do is make the most of it. So um, does it affect you? I think anyone who says it doesn't is lying to you um, or they've got a stronger fortitude than what I have. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like you can't say it doesn't. Now, does it drive you? 
absolutely drove me to to not only um, succeed in how I wanted to or succeed in what I want to achieve, but um, to say, you know, well, that's not the only reason why, why I'm here. Um, and, you know, that's obviously a, a hard journey to take. Um, not the first person to have gone through and won't be the last person to go, th- go through it um, in motorsport. When did you feel like you had the acceptance, mainly probably of the main game, V8 Supercar Championship, Paddock? Because you started, you came through the development series, you won that in 2002. We'll cover off some of the early racing in a sec, but... You got in with Larry in 2003 yep. from a full-time point of view after yep. doing the Enduros yep. for a couple of years. At what point did you feel like, I'm part of the brotherhood here, I, mm. I actually I belong here, I've got the skill to be here, and I've got, more importantly, the respect of everybody else? Or th- most people. You probably never get the respect of everybody in a Yeah, behavior. no, absolutely. I think it's probably very late in the picture, probably two points, probably around the FPR days, maybe like the second year in the FPR where we were sort of consistently in the top 10. I think we finished ninth in the championship or the top 10 in the championship at least anyway. I think that was, you know, obviously a big step forward. And then I think the enduro stuff with with Triple Eight um, as well. So yes, you know, our our history or our results will be checkered. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Jamie and I have consistently said, you know, all we want to do is put ourselves in the best position to win every race we entered into. And in seven years, there's probably a, a few races where we, we didn't have really competitive shot of winning winning the enduro, enduro races. So, yeah, I think it'll be very late in my career. Certainly uh, the LP days, Walkinshaw days, four-wheel racing days. Um, yeah, I didn't give enough to the sport uh, the sport, and um, the results weren't there. And, and Because you, know, you didn't understand what you needed to give? Yeah, there's you absolutely. You weren't willing to give it? I think it's not knowing. Like, you don't know. Being very young, you don't know what good is. Um, I think there's an abs- was absolutely a dedication issue. Um, you know, I, I sort of, you know, you work hard to get to where you want to get to. You get there and you go, well, it'll just come. And, and that's actually where you got to work twice as hard. Um, and no, I didn't didn't understand that until four or five years later and that's where I sort of took up triathlon and 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 other things to challenge myself and 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 you know I needed those things outside of motorsport to really get the right balance for me um, as an individual. Going back through the files we talked about the, the Formula Holden stuff but it was probably when you got into the what well, was the creation of what Super 2 now that mm. gave a bit of a platform for young drivers to get into uh, V8 supercars as it was then. But I think everyone forgets you did test a, an F3000 car in Europe. Was it Donington the same day that Mark Webber had his first yep. taste of yeah, a similar car? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think Will Davison still got the tape. Oh, the, hand, uh, the handheld uh, VCR. Absolutely. Can you please not? Cause I shunted. I shunted on that day as well. So I've, set I've got a photo up. somewhere of that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Like at that stage, was this a case of you were keen to try to do something over there? Yeah. Absolutely. I think I was fifteen or sixteen at the time. Gee, I was one of those two. I could have been seventeen. I, Meg, I, was, you, I was young. You were mega young, no matter what. Yeah. Year I was, it that I was young at the time. So yeah. So we got a test over there. Um, yeah. With Paul Stoddard, uh, Trevor Schumach. Um, who helped us for many, many years, um, helped uh, arrange that with Gary. And, and, yeah, it was a great experience. Like those cars back then were were bloody quick cars and they were pretty awesome to drive. And I'd been to Donington before having done the Jim Russell driving school when I was, yeah, a couple of years earlier. So I had, knew the track. Uh, yeah, and it was a great experience. So, you know, those cars were awesome. Um, I think at that stage I probably knew that, um, you know, the dream's always Formula One as every, you know, young, budding racing car driver had. But I think I very quickly knew I didn't have the ability to get to F1 
ability or, or the capability in terms of driving ability or, or the financial ability to do that. And, and you know, um, supercars in Australia was going strength to strength and, and you know, being close to home uh, in Australia, great touring car series and only grew to be even better than what it was back uh, back in the late, uh, uh, late uh, 90s and early 2000s. And the late 90s is where you get your first go in a supercar. So what you, you make your championship debut at Simmons Plains, 1999, Mm. A second John Faulkner racing car. It's actually one of Peter Brock's old HRT cars mm. from mm. back in the day. Is it, Be- is it Betty? Beth. Beth. Beth, Beth which we've right. done Beth. a podcast about the yep. history of that car yep. on the V8 Sleuth yeah, podcast. Well, so right. if our listeners haven't heard it, go back through our files and, and have a listen to it. But you're still a school kid. So is it right that you go in your school uniform to the airport and, what, you're 16, maybe 17 by this stage? Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't uh, have a license and uh, go down to Tasmania. And uh, So how did this all come to be, though, that you got to, to do that? I, I think, yeah, John Faulkner and, and my father obviously go back a long way and obviously, you know, once again, you know, just getting experience. It was all about getting miles uh, around there and the decision was uh, to try to obviously get in the Enduro, so it would be great to get some experience uh, there at the time. And that was back in the day where the Privateers, Privateer Cup, was there. So yeah. it's sort of very much of a two tier series. Um, so, you know, it was thought, you know, great track, small track, you know, one over the years, which I, I, you know, was quite competitive at. So that was probably more, more good luck than anything. Um, and yeah, so we went, went down that path to go race down there. And I remember clearly all you want to do in your first race is to be dry. So probably shouldn't have chosen Tasmania <laughs> in the middle of winter or uh, whenever it was. Yeah. It was <laughs> like torrential rain all weekend and we had a, had an alternate issue all weekend. It wasn't a great, great weekend, to be honest, uh, from that side of things. But, uh, yeah, it was great, great to get the experience, get the miles, uh, uh, around, uh, around Tassie. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter, that's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. And then you go to Bathurst for the first time with Matthew White, Matty White who was yep. uh, at the time being a NASCAR Oscar guy and moving into circuit racing. Yep. So uh, your first trip to the mountain in a supercar, you're what, 17? That's the story to tell the kids at school, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, uh, yeah, the story's good. Well, I think we started around the corner. I think I was pretty yeah, much back in the to, day where there were so many cars. Yeah, I think we had to. Uh, I, can't, yeah, I can't remember. I remember, yeah, there was cars back in the day. You start around the corner, you nearly have to brake to get to around the last corner before you accelerate out. Um, yeah, no, I think we, we qualified the mid 30s or whatnot, and it was all about trying to get miles. And and I guess that's the philosophy which I probably didn't understand back then. Maybe maybe youth, maybe inexperience, maybe uh, just you know a bit too aggressive was. Then the day to get um, experience around Bathurst, you got to finish. And I think my first three years at Bathurst, myself or the co-driver, I don't think we got past lap thirteen or fourteen. 
uh, in the first three years. So, you know, there was 300 or 400 laps of experience, you know, gone down the drain where, you know, in those years, you just have to circle. Yeah. And back then, you actually might get a good result. Finishing yeah. was actually a, a great outcome and, and you know, uh, you know the top 10 usually be a lap down or a couple laps down. So you just do a good job. You actually get a great result where it's very different today. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, in reflection, uh, certainly a lot left to be desired in how we approached, uh, approached those couple of races. Now, approach to Bathurst is important no matter whether you're going there for the first time, 20th time, you're the hot favourite or you're the, the, the rookie kid. Tell me about your preparation for Bathurst 2001 wasn't ideal for when you were driving with Gary Rogers Motorsport that you took a trip to the snow, did you not? And you took a tumble, what, five weeks out from Bathurst and was it collarbone or shoulder or? Yeah. I seem to remember that. And how did that phone call go to Gary Rogers to say, I've got a bit of an issue here? Yeah, well, I probably need to bring a few people down with me at the same time. Yeah, so, you know, Will <laughs> hey, o- Davison, Jamie Winkup, Stewie McColl, I think, was there. Um, yeah, hey, uh, my birthday, uh, parents uh, fatefully gave, uh, gave the boys a weekend away at the snow and uh, we went up to Mount Buller and... Um, the story goes, uh, you know, we, we all drove up there. It might have been on a Friday call. Now, hang on. The story goes or the, the reality factual story. goes? We actually tell the, okay. tell we the factual story. We can tell all the story. real stories Yeah, now. exactly okay. right. Um, and we're, we're skiing, down the, skiing down the slopes, et cetera, late in the afternoon. We did a couple of quick runs before the before you, know, you hit the pub that night. And we went back to the room and, and it might have been 3.30 in the afternoon. And uh, uh, we said, uh, uh, the boys were wanting to get in the Jim Beam and, you know, the big the big uh, decanting Jim Beam bottle we had there. <laughs> and. And uh, we uh, we poured a, we were about to pour a few, and I sort of pressured all the boys. Let's go do one more run, the famous one, one more run, just one more, one more. So we uh, we went down on the mountain, and uh, we were sort of uh, quite adventurous, and we we're going down an area which wasn't uh, yet open. Uh, we sort of got pulled over by the ski patrol, and and they said, "Oh, guys, you know this isn't groomed and it's not set up." And um, go off, uh, go back onto the main track, which we uh, we said, "Yep, absolutely." And Lied ski patrol, yeah, ski patrol drove off, and we went straight back down the the run, which was closed, and and a good reason for it closed. There was a couple of uh, a tabletop jumps from memory, and the memory's a little bit hazy. And uh, I think the first ones were all good, and the next one they built the ramp and nothing else. So I uh, did a bit of a Superman through the air and uh, uh, on the ground and holding my shoulder, and I can't remember if it was Will or Jamie. Um, they've skied over to me, and there's a few people behind us who haven't come down yet in our group and uh yeah, it might have been Willie. He's looked down at me and and he's felt my shoulder and he's gone up and he's <laughs> he's given the big cross arm and <laughs> this is not good. So uh yeah, hey uh, to the uh, to the Mount Buller Hospital uh, up in the mountain there and cracked collarbone. It's quite funny, uh, you mates get right round you and in the collarbone and there's people with perforated skin with broken bones. I've got a little snap in the shoulder and Jamie, Jamie comes in and I'm getting an x-ray. He's bowled into the x-ray um, machine uh, where the doctor's giving me the bad news. I think he, the doctor said, oh, it's a small crack of the collarbone and Jamie's got the x-ray as the doctor does, flip it out up to the light and, and <laughs> looked at it and came down and put the hand on my shoulder, mate, it's just not connected. It's completely snapped in half. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Winkup with Dr. the uh, Winkup. prognosis. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, hey, um, yeah, called Gary uh, the next day uh, um, and it gave him the good news. Uh, it was a real sign of what your good mates were, were like. So I, uh, one of our family friends drove up to Matt Buller to pick us up, uh, pick me up and take me back down to Melbourne uh, and the, the, all the boys stayed up there and substituted um, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Marcus Marshall or someone else. Someone took else my got place your spot. Took my bed. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, I knew I had a good set of mates there. I'd be lifelong friends with. But um, yeah, hey. So surgery, plate in the collarbone, uh, seven or eight skew- screws, which is still there today, and uh, managed to uh, get up to get up to Bathurst.
And how did Gary Rogers go with all this? Yeah, I don't think he was that pleased uh, about it, um, which is fair enough. Like, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I think all that contract, you know, you're not allowed to mountain bike, you're not allowed to snow ski, you're not allowed to do all these things. Everyone does it. It's just, just a warning. Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, or it it's, catches yeah, you out. I think it catches you out. It's probably the, yeah. the, the bigger thing. So, hey, my, my view was you can't live your life wrapped up in cotton wool. I've done it for a long time. Yep. You know, probably should have been smarter about it uh, along the way, but um, – you know, youthful exuberance, I'll put it down to, and uh, some good uh, lifelong lessons. Now, there have been some other injuries. Now, didn't you get hit by a car as a younger bloke and it, it busted up your hip? Was it <coughs> when you were in karting or open wheel? It was probably one of the reasons why we went to Formula Holden first. We, we actually were planning on doing Formula Ford. Because um, mm. that's uh, one of the questions I want to ask is you seem to go in high. Oh, you, you didn't <coughs> go through Formula Ford and mm. the, the junior ranks. you <coughs> You jumped to Formula Holden, probably the most yep. powerful open wheels at the time, V8s as a teenager. Why did you skip those steps? This crash had something to do with it. Yeah, when I was, you know, going 15, you know, going to 16, you know, the plan was Formula Ford, Formula, Formula Ford for a year, Formula Holden for a year, and then go from there and, and, uh, yeah, um, got my, uh, got knocked off, uh, the bike, uh, by a car, out broke my hip, yeah, out the yeah. road, yeah, doing training. So I was training and, you know, doing fitness at the time. Um, yeah, broke my hip. I broke the neck of my femur and I had a couple of screws uh, put into it as well. So that sort of lost six or nine months. Um, so instead of sort of starting from a 40 year later, um, we just went to the next step. So, you know, right or wrong, you know, obviously, you know, who, who knows at the time, but certainly it was a fairly big step up from, uh, you know, the HQ hole in which I got my licensing to uh, up at uh, with Alan Heafy, took me up to Lakeside Raceway. Uh, One of our fans has asked a question. Uh, about that in our Couch Racer question segment. So we're kind of fast-forwarding to Anthony okay. Stewart's question, but he said, do you remember getting signatures on your P's in a super cheap auto-sponsored HQ Holden? Yeah, absolutely. It was up at Lakeside, so I remember it clearly. Uh, the three on a tree, or three, uh, three, <laughs> yeah. three gearbox. It was great. I love Lakeside. It was one of the best tracks and, uh, you know, an underpowered uh, car. It was actually all about, you know, just, uh, you know, flying the car and whatnot. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Alan Heafy, uh, took me up uh, there and uh, helped me uh, helped me through the weekend. So that's yeah, quite a quite a funny old uh, funny old story. And you ended up driving a super cheap auto supercar later uh, on down the track. Bit yes. different from a yeah, it's HQ. quite funny that being involved in automotive my whole life and autobahn being part of our, our family DNA. I think I've driven for the Repco you've, with Rod Nash and super cheap them. auto and, and <laughs> Auto Pro and uh, yeah, so it's a quite uh, quite ironic um, uh, the history. There are a few other injuries along the way. Are you an unco, <laughs> or, or are you are you actually just an unlucky bloke? It's definitely unlucky, right? No, okay. no. I think so, um, so. Why is it? And I think Reynolds outed you about this on another podcast in previous years. So you missed the last <laughs> round of the Dunlop series in Sydney in 2016. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. has been suggested that you may have been attempting the worm. <laughs> <laughs> on a dance floor or similar, true or false? You, you oh, get the big questions. On absolutely, this absolutely. Well, the story goes is I slipped. Now, and, is this and, the story uh, or the no? The, the, real? the, the, the story goes is okay. I slipped on a boat at uh, Will's, um, at Jamie's uh, Bucks party, uh-huh. um, and, and it was actually an hour into the day, so it wasn't you hadn't actually, even got going yet. Hadn't even got going yet. Um, but yes, yeah, so the how I slipped is probably where it was slightly grey. <laughs> 
great, great, great from the story. No, great, great for everyone else. So yeah, it absolutely was was uh, yeah attempting to do uh, the worm at about <laughs> one in the afternoon. <laughs> Had you successfully done the worm ever before? In yeah, your life? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Can definitely do the worm. Um, but yeah, no, uh, slipped uh, wearing thongs, so not wearing the uh, appropriate attire to do the worm. What is the appropriate time to do a worm, by the way? Just in case I feel well, I think like it's just another me. 20 20 more beers. This right, is okay. what I had. So I think probably in hindsight, I'd never done it sober. So issue number one, and then wasn't wearing the right right safety equipment. So uh, yeah, hey, that's a interesting day. Obviously, uh, hindsight was yeah, I cracked my shoulder and discarded my shoulder and whatnot. Still managed to kick on for the into that one or two in the morning. <laughs> is that Dave Reynolds? And it's funny that Dave Dave does tell the story, and I haven't hadn't actually heard that. But uh, we we um, flew back to Melbourne the next day, and uh, driving uh, back home, and I'll give him a lift. Uh, we only lived around the corner from each other, and it was only when I was at Melbourne Airport for people who know there's the the car park you go around the the sort of the circle piece to get down the car park. Yep. It was only then when I really tried to turn the steering wheel, I went. I might have a problem I'm in here. trouble. So, uh, yes, my, my Bucks party was actually uh, the following week. Oh. Um, so we were going to Hong Kong and Will and Jamie and a few other mates were there. Uh, there's a trait coming up in this story and uh, went to see the surgeon and, yeah, it was pretty 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 busted up. So you had surgery a couple of days later and uh, once again, a good trait from friends. Uh, yeah, I think there was eight people going to the Bucks party. Uh, six people still went. Uh, without me, <laughs> without you, without me, yeah. So they took a photo of me and uh, got plenty of photos over the week. So I've got a good bunch of mates who There's uh, a thing certainly here look after that your me. Your mates are pretty crap, to be honest. Yeah, they they abandon you when you're in your time of need. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah. So um, hey, bit of bit of fun along the way. Um, you know, I've lived my life to the fullest. Yes, no. <laughs> uh, probably no a few doubt. things I'd like to do differently. Uh, but anyway, um, I guess uh, that's how it goes. One of the things that you probably wouldn't want to do differently is 2002. So you'd done a year in the development series. I think it was called the Fujitsu series at that stage. Yep. No, it was the Konica series. Konica That's series, yeah, Konica series, yeah. Uh, back in those days, a lot of the, if not all the rounds were standalones. Stand yep. They weren't part of the V8 supercar yeah, rounds. Ma- so Malala or Malala, Wakefield, Wakefield Park, Park Phillip Island. Yep. Uh, usually it was about five rounds. I think in 02 it extended to six. six yep. um, you had your learning year in 01. You did a bit of winning. You did a bit of spinning. You did a bit of everything, but you were fast. In 02, you linked up with Marty Brandt in one of the ex, I think it was a Russell Ingle car, wasn't it? A yep. Castrol car, and you dominate. I think you won every round bar one, 12 yep. or 15 races, yep. somewhere along those lines, and, and won the series. So was it there that you felt, right, I can do this. I've just put a, a body of work together that mm-hmm. means that I'm the real deal here. I can actually yeah. do something with this. I'm not just here because I can. Yeah, I think so. I think in the '01 we were leading the championship going to the last race and lost it with, with Willsey. Yeah, yeah. Willsey and I came together at turn two, I think it was, and, and lost the championship. So I think the back end of that year sort of got some experience and then, yeah, the following year, absolutely. I think um, not um, – you know, the competition was certainly nowhere near the level as what it is today and, and you know, it's a lot smaller field and, and certainly we probably brought a um, – you know, uh, professionalism, yeah. um, which a lot of teams were doing at that time. There's still so a I lot think, of privateer type yeah, teams. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there weren't any of the, the main series teams sort of stepping down doing that. But um, at the end of the day, yeah, it was great experience. I think, you know, it was just right time, right level of experience. Um, but, yeah, certainly a, a wake-up call the following year going into the main series. Not saying that ever thought we're going to go out and start winning, you know, round one, but sort of, you know, you're, you're qualifying on pole winning races by by a reasonable distance and then you go to the main series and you're qualifying 25th uh, and and the challenge that that, that brought uh, the following year. How did the deal to get to Larry's 
work? Was it a case? Well, he was retiring, wasn't he? 2002 was his last year and yep. you were his co-driver. I think he finished fifth at Bathurst. He had a really yep. good run and uh, Russell and Steve Richards finished second at both yep. the Enduro. So those cars were really competitive. Yep. And I remember vividly that the rain came late at Bathurst with the co-drivers in the car, Jim Richards in the Scaife car that won. I think yep. you were in Larry's car. Russell was probably in the yep. other Castrol car. And then, it, and I think... If I'm right, the, the cash, this is a forgotten one in probably the Bathurst Annals, but the Castrol cars were in the mix to be actually Richo led in the, the last run, and you were, I think, second at some yep. stage. Do you, what are your, yeah, your memories absolutely. of that? That could have been a podium or a win even. No, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, the memory is, is a little sketchy. I, I remember it clearly that um, I think it was just one of those things. It was probably risk versus reward, you know, high risk <laughs> uh, and high reward uh, and could have come could have come off another way. So I think we made a whole lot of time in those first couple of laps where typically at Bathurst, you know, people are trying to judge call, do you stay out, do you stay in? You know, it's about sometimes just surviving those two or three laps where the rain's at its peak. Um, to let the track dry out. So I think probably a little bit of naivety, um, you know, and a bit of aggression. Just, you know, we, we rolled the dice and it, we came up on the right side of, uh, of, uh, of that roll. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. So we, we dropped down a couple of, a couple of, uh, sort of spots late in the race. Um, but yeah, no, it was an amazing experience, you know, with, with LP up there at that time as well. So, you know, he's just a, an absolute hero and legend of the sport. Um, and to be able to drive with him and, and all the uh, PR and media around that was a pretty special experience. So did you have your deal done that you were going to be the full-time driver the next year? How did that happen? Was that part of the enduro seat? Was it a bit of a yeah, negotiation that come to you? Yeah, it was, part of, yeah, it it was part, of a, part, of a, um, part of the whole thing. So, yeah, so we sort of locked into the to do the enduros and, and uh, 03 uh, in the main series. So, obviously, um, with the results we had in the um, in the uh Conica series at the time, obviously, you know, my old man um, obviously had a number of conversations with LP and, yeah, the rest the rest is history. So we sort of locked in a couple of years and and uh, we went down that path. It would be fair to say that you tested his patience over those <laughs> couple of years, I would have thought would be <laughs> the way to describe it. And yep. A few funny stories that's coming I was going to sure. say, I, I want to see if some are true or false or somewhere <laughs> in between. Uh, did you get threatened to get benched? At some stage, no, I think LP actually I might have been. I think it was. I can't remember what round it was before Sandown, but one of his feedback. I can't remember what year it was, but he said, "You know, you, you just you're too slow at the gates in practice. You've got to go out and be on the money straight away. You're taking too long to get up to it." So the next race, you know, Sandown, I'm going to get out there and you know straight away come out of the pits and just speed it off on the outlap straight to turn one. And plenty of people have done it, and I. <laughs> I think the one thing you I should have thought about the one thing you shouldn't do, <laughs> spirit off on lap one at turn one. Uh, LP told me to, after that session, <coughs> get my stuff and don't come back. Um, wow. You know, so I uh, packed up all my stuff out of the truck and went home that night. And 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 you know, he's rung me that night and goes, you know, I just I just want you to succeed. And you know, this is a business. A lot of people's jobs rely on on your performance and Richo's performance. And you know, trying to you know rattle you to you know get do a better job. So. You know, LP um, was a hard taskmaster, but at the same time, um, you know, it was a business. You know, we've got to take a step back and, and probably didn't see this at the time, but when you reflect, you know, this is a business that they run. And, and, and there's probably 40-odd uh, people working there at that stage? Absolutely. Yeah, building cars, competitive. You know, Castrol is a multinational sponsor. Um, you know, obviously, you know, LP's been there 100 years and had the level of experience and success and, and LP and Russell were there. So they were race winning or top five every single race. So 
it was a very big change for them to blood a, a, a rookie um, and a rookie that was doing a pretty average job, to be perfectly frank, at the same time. So, hey, there was no no love lost and, and it was really tough and challenging time and, and that probably was highlighted by me not dedicating enough to the business, uh, to, to racing. Um, you know, it wasn't fit enough, I was overweight. You know, I think, you know, at my peak I might have, um, you know, lost 10 kilos from back in those days to where I raced for the last from the, for the last 10 years um, as well. So, uh, yeah, LP was probably on the money more often than not, to be honest, in, in reflection. Um, but, yeah, certainly it was a, a challenging couple of years. Did you – did that wind you harder did, or did you rebel against it? I think a bit of both. You know, LP always wanted the best. You know, he, he you know, went and did the gym, um, went and did um, some driving. Rob Wilson. Uh, Rob, yeah, yep. Rob Wilson. Yep. Uh, Rob Wilson over, over in the UK, which was his suggestion. He suggested, you know, uh, me to go get a helicopter license, um, you know, and, and the rationale was that is you can't lose concentration no. in a helicopter. And, and his observation, which is true, was whilst I was quick and my career will say, you know, glimpses of speed it was the consistency and the mistakes which always brought me undone so so he sort of you know being being dedicated to flying a helicopter you know we'll probably get the concentration uh, right which certainly did and, and then obviously getting fit uh, i think they were the two key things which started me on a journey which which was in the right right trajectory so that's part one of our chat with paul umbrella on the v8 salute podcast powered by timkin in part two, we covered the deal that nearly saw him replace Russell Ingall at Stone Brothers Racing, his breakthrough success at Sandown in 2010 when he won his first V8 supercar race, how he joined Triple Eight as Jamie Winkup's co-driver and then became a co-owner of the team. We'll hit him up too with the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and our Motor Focus Top 10 shootout. Don't forget too, you can visit our bookshop online to purchase a, a wide range of books and publications. It's bookshop.v8sleuth.com. Collectors, posters and prints and even some golden racing on DVDs. You can sign up to the V8 Sleuth newsletter as well through the store. Follow us on socials across Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Keep the messages coming. Keep the ideas for podcasts coming. We love hearing from V8 Sleuth supporters and motorsport fans. In the meantime though, that's us done for part one of Paul Dumbrell. That's the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. We'll see you with part two. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.